Well, Jake, thank you very much for leading us in prayer. As I say from time to time, it is the preacher's prerogative to change his mind. <clears throat> Since the bulletin went to print on Thursday, uh, the two sermon points, there are still just two points, but they've changed a little bit. If you listen to the sermon, you'll pick that up readily enough. But another thing concerns the verses that we're going to be considering this morning. We're going to be looking only at verses 11 through 13 this morning. I think it's helpful, though, to read the passage in your bulletin so that we can see where Paul is going to be taking us. But in addition to that, I am going to begin reading at verse 11, a verse that Travis dealt with last week. You'll note that Paul begins verse 11 with the word therefore, and therefore is a very important word to Paul I think, I, I think it was Sinclair Ferguson who once said that whenever you see the word therefore in the text, you should always ask, why has Paul put the word therefore there in the text? It's a connecting word. It connects to what immediately came before. And we'll remember as we read verse 11 that Paul made the grand statement that we are God's workmanship. So what we see today follows on the heels of that great statement this identity of ours that we are God's workmanship. So I want to begin reading in verse 11, and I will read through verse 18, but we will examine only verses 11 through 13 this morning. Now hear the word of the Lord. We are His, that is God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore... Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace." and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Almighty God, whose word is a gift of wisdom and insight, we ask, give us a spirit of wisdom, give us a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of your word and in the knowledge of Christ our Savior. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts now that we may know the hope we have in you as our majestic and our merciful God. Reveal yourself to us 
And Father, in this time, stir up once again our remembrance of all you have given to us in Christ our Savior. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the story is told how centuries ago workmen could be seen dragging a great marble block into Florence, Italy. This marble block had been mined in those great marble quarries in Carrera, Italy. It was destined to be sculpted into an Old Testament prophet. But the block contained numerous weaknesses and imperfections. And when the great sculptor Donatello inspected it, he rejected it at once. And so there the great marble block lay in the cathedral courtyard, useless. One day another sculptor saw it, and he inspected it. Despite all its weaknesses and imperfections, he set himself to sculpt it into an image of immense beauty. He persevered in his work for two years, and then finally on January 25th, 1504, many of the great artists of the Renaissance period gathered to see what had been made of that rejected block. In the audience were artists such as Botticelli and Leonardo da Vinci. The veil dropped and the statue was heralded with a chorus of praise. It was a masterpiece. And succeeding generations have confirmed the praise of that first audience. Michelangelo's David is one of the greatest art masterpieces the world has ever seen. Brothers and sisters, we are God's workmanship. You and I are those formerly dead and sinful of weaknesses and imperfections whom God chose in love. And He redeemed in Christ and is now renewing us and sculpting us into Christ's glorious likeness. That is our glorious calling. And when you think about it, it it just takes your breath away. One day in glory, God will look upon us and he will be completely pleased with what he has made of us. And the angels too will marvel and they will look upon us and they will say to one another, look at what God has made out of those formerly useless sinners. How they reflect the likeness of their Savior. What masterpieces of God's grace they are. You and I are God's workmanship. But my friends, it is easy for us to forget that. It is so, so easy to forget the glory that God has destined us to put on. So Paul commands us, remember. He commands us to remember twice. This word remember is like a rallying call. It is like a bugle blast calling us to our duty, calling us to remember our identity in Christians. We are God's workmanship. We are those in whom God is working mightily according to His power. We are no little people. Yes, we possess still great weaknesses. We've confessed a few of those this morning. 
And yes, we struggle against these great powers of indwelling sin and against a world that is just in rebellion against God and committed to pressing us into its mold. And we war against the devil who seeks to devour us. But despite all of that, we belong to God. And so we do not lose heart. Whether we are aware of it, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that he's renewing us day by day into the likeness of his Son. We are God's workmanship. And in order to impress this good news on our hearts and renew our hope with freshness, Paul has us pause momentarily in this letter to remember two great realities. First, remember what you once were. But also remember now whose you now are. You belong to God. And you belong to the people of God. Remember what you once were. From time to time, it's just good, it's necessary to pause and to remember with thanksgiving what we were so that we might give glory to God for what we now are in Christ. And and that's what Paul is doing here. And that's why he uses this word, therefore. This is a new section. And in this new section, Paul wants us to remember what we were in sin so that we might sing praises to God for His grace. I think this section works a little bit on us like John Newton's famous hymn does. It's a hymn of remembrance. It's a hymn of praise. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Remember. Remember how it was back in verses 1 and 2, Paul described there our lost condition, and he was doing it at that point from the viewpoint of our personal depravity. He said, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's our former lostness expressed from the viewpoint of our personal depravity. But we see in this new section, there's a shift in viewpoint, isn't there? Because now in this new section, Paul describes our lostness from the standpoint of salvation history or redemptive history. Throughout the Old Testament history, the Gentiles had been largely cut off from the saving grace of God, which he had revealed almost exclusively at that time to the Jews. It wasn't that God had left himself without a witness to the nations. God's eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen in his creation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, David says in his psalm. Like a painter, God has revealed his divine nature on the canvas of his creation. And God has also revealed himself in how he orders history. In Acts 14, Paul tells the Greeks, God did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God has also revealed himself further within man's own nature by creating him in his image and writing his law on his heart. During the Old Testament period, God had left himself without witness in creation, in history, and within man's own heart, but God's saving grace... His saving grace, which no sinner has a rightful claim to, 
Because grace is grace. God's saving grace was reserved only for the Jew. It had all begun when God called Abraham from his idolatry and into a covenantal union with himself and led him from Mesopotamia to Canaan. According to his promise, God enabled Abraham and Sarah, who had been barren her whole life, to supernaturally conceive and bear a son when she was 90. And in time, God... Through that special son, Isaac, God created a nation for himself. And the role of that nation had been to bear testimony to the nations of the true knowledge of God that could only be had by becoming an Israelite. God gave the men of his nation the physical sign of circumcision to mark that that nation has been separated from the unbelieving world and consecrated to God's service. But at that time, the Gentiles had been excluded by birth from God's covenant mercies. They were Gentiles in the flesh. They had no badge of God's covenant mercies on them. And lacking the cutting off of circumcision, they were cut off from God. Now, this is more than a fascinating history lesson for us. You see, isn't this a diagnosis of modern people today who live cut off from God? People who walk in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. How many of us were like that at one point? But God. But God revealed His grace to us in Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist said. My friends, let us pause and let us remember what we were through our disobedience so that we might now remember with praise to God whose we now are by His grace. We were cut off from God. We were cut off from His covenant mercies in three ways. We were cut off from God's Messiah. We were cut off from God's people. We were cut off from God's purpose. Brothers and sisters, one time we were cut off from God's Messiah. Look again at verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ before the appearance of Christ in history. The Gentiles had no hope of a Savior. I mean, this is, was as true of Greek religion as it, as it is of modern-day secularism. There is no Savior and there is no hope. I mean, consider the Ephesians at the time of this letter. They lived in a city where the hideous goddess of fertility, Aphrodite or Diana, was worshipped. And if you purchased her favor there at the temple, she supposedly might help you with her power. But she offered no salvation to the great problems of life. None. And how much of this ancient worldview is the worldview of modern-day secularism? A culture's worldview must answer these kinds of basic questions. Who am I? What is the problem? What is the solution? And today's secular worldview, borrowing as it does from ancient paganism, says that we are simply products of chance, living without purpose, on a little planet lost in the vastness of time and space. And so the challenge, therefore, for modern-day culture here in the West is how to get it by with as much pleasure as you can and as little pain as possible. 
But you see, our society ignores how despite the fact that we are the wealthiest and we are the healthiest people in history, we are also some of the most empty and miserable. I mean, it's just as Jesus said, you can gain the whole world and lose your soul. But the Christian has a completely different perspective on life. The Christian says, I am created in the image of God. I have been put here to know Him and serve Him and enjoy Him forever. I was cut off from God by my disobedience and my rebellion. I was a child of wrath. I had no hope. But I have a Savior, Jesus Christ, now. God's own Son took on my flesh... And then he took away my sin by his sacrificial death on the cross. And he has given me new life by his victorious resurrection. He has reconciled me to God. He has made me his beloved child. Cut off from God's Messiah. Cut off from God's people. That's a second thing Paul draws our attention to. Verse 12 says that the Ephesians had been alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They had been separated from the community of God's people and the community of God's blessing. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, Cyrus's Persia, Alexander's Greece, Caesar's Rome, these had all been great and mighty civilizations. These were the civilizations where there were great heroes. Even so, they had been outside the circle of God's special love and concern which he had for the Jewish people. A people considered utterly insignificant in the eyes of the world. With the arrival of God's Messiah, much has changed for the people of God. We are no longer have to be a member of a particular race or nation. We no longer wear the badge of circumcision or practice the law of Moses, but still there is a sense in which you cannot be saved without identifying yourself with God's people. Remember Ruth the Moabitess in the Old Testament? She's very instructive to us. Ruth was a foreigner, and she was married to Naomi's Jewish family. Naomi's family had been living in a foreign land during a time of famine in her homeland. And Ruth had had married one of Naomi's sons while the family was living in that foreign land. But sadly, Naomi's husband died and Ruth's Jewish husband died too. And Naomi decided to return to her homeland of Israel to live in God's care. And, And Ruth had learned a great deal about Israel's God through her marriage to this Jewish son of Naomi's. And when Naomi started to depart, Ruth begged her with these words. She said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God shall be my God. You see, Ruth's profession of faith is very instructive to us here in the West. Before, she says, your God shall be my God. What does she say? She says, your people shall be my people. You see, 
She could not enter into God's salvation with also, without also entering into God's people. And I think that's very instructive for us. God saves us as individuals, but God does not save us to live as isolated individuals. God joins us to Christ as members of his body. God adopts us as his children in his family, and God gives us a people and a family to belong to. I mean... How can we be joined to Christ in love and our Heavenly Father if we are unwilling to love those who are loved by Jesus and the Father? You see? Do you see how it works? But something else, and and the real significant, I mean the real secret of fruitful, effective mission in the world Jesus reminds us of this. The real secret is the quality of our community with each other. Atheism, secularism, other religions, those can produce some great heroes, yes, of unusual moral greatness and courage. They can. They can. But what atheism and other religions cannot produce is a kind of loving community that the gospel produces. In fact, Jesus said, he he said that it's our deep unity and love. That is the way, Jesus says, that the world will know that the gospel we profess is true. And there's a third thing, cut off from God's purpose. In verse 12, Paul calls the Gentiles strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, what is a covenant? Well, covenant is like a marital union. It's this relational bond that's based on promises and responsibilities. And at different times in history, God made covenants with his people through individuals such as Abraham and, and Moses and David. But significantly, Paul uses the word promise here in the singular. There are different covenants, but there's one promise. The covenants pointed to the promise of salvation for men and women of every tribe and tongue and nation through faith alone in God's Messiah. During the period of the Old Testament and until the appearance of Christ, that purpose of God was not fully revealed. And so the Gentiles had been without God and without hope. How many of them were like, you know, how many are like them today? That's why history and life have no meaning for so many. A number of years ago, there was a cultural critic named Neil Postman. He had some interesting views on things, and perhaps his most famous book was a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And And Postman said that what he found most depressing is that the few people, in his opinion, who think deeply about things, the few people who think deeply about things are the most pessimistic of all. He was. Uh, Not that you have to be highly educated to be hopeless, but uh, there was a popular magazine at the time, and it ran an issue on the meaning of life, and Jose Martinez, a Taxi driver offered this insight. He said, we're here to die. We're, we're here to die. Just live and die. Life is a big fake. No one gives a blank. You're rich or you're poor. You're here or you're gone. You're like the wind. 
After you're gone, other people will come. We're going to destroy ourselves. There's nothing we can do about it. If secularly minded people have no hope about life, things only get worse for them at death. Things only get worse for them at death. That's the great enemy, isn't it? The philosopher Thomas Hobbes died famously saying, if I had the whole world, I would give it to live one day. I'm about to take a leap into the dark. That's the hopelessness of people without God. And compare that to the hope the gospel gives Christians at death. The lives of martyrs, I think, provide some of the most striking examples. Roland Taylor, for example, one of the English reformers, could have avoided being burned at the stake. What a way to die. If he had simply denied the faith. And a few days before he was burned to death, Taylor wrote his family these words. He says, I believe that they are blessed which die in the Lord. God careth for sparrows and for the hairs of our heads. I have ever found him more faithful and favorable than is any father or husband. Trust ye, trust ye therefore in him by the means of our dear Savior Christ's merits. Believe, love, fear, and obey Him, pray to Him, for He hath promised to help. Count me not dead, for I shall certainly live and never die. You see, with Christ we experience God's purpose that stretches into eternity. Belonging to God and belonging to His people and one another forever. Remember what you once were. But with that, remember whose you now are. Remember whose you now are. Once you were without God in the world and without hope, but now, Paul says, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We belong to God. You know, these two little words, but now, they mark this great pivot point in history. Before Christ came, Israel was near but God, but the Gentiles were far. But all that has changed with the arrival of Christ in history. Christ came speaking peace to those who were, what, far and near? He came as a light to the Gentiles, bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. In Christ Jesus, believing Jew and believing Gentile are no longer two, but now one new man who is near God. And this is good news for two reasons. First, We belong to God by the blood of Christ. We belong to God by the blood of His Son. My friends, the blood of Christ has done everything for us. Everything. Christ paid our debt of sin. And therefore our debt of sin has ceased to exist for all who have sought salvation by His blood. The punishment for our sin Christ has endured and therefore no punishment is due us. Substitution has bridged this gulf between 
God that cannot be bridged by any other means. In Christ, the just suffered for the unjust to reconcile us to God, to wash us from the filth of Adam, and to clothe us with the righteousness of Christ. And we belong to God in Christ. We belong to God in Christ. By the blood of Christ, we are in Christ. We are united to Christ. What do we say? We are saying that all of the privileges of the once favored Jews are now ours and even more besides. Are they the promised seed of Abraham? Well, so are we. For as many as believe in Christ are given the right to become the children of God. Believing Gentile and believing Jew now are the spiritual seed God promised to Abraham. Did, 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 did they have a high priest? Well, so do we. We have a high priest, Jesus, who has entered into the heavenlies for us. He has brought us to God in the heavenly realm. Did they have a sacrifice? Did they have a Passover supper? We have Christ, who by his one perfect sacrifice has forever put away our sin, and who is today the Lamb of God, the spiritual meat, the spiritual meat and the spiritual drink that we enjoy today. All the ancient Jews had, we have. Only today, we have it in fuller measure. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth have come to us by Christ. John says, the ancient Jew had the shadow, but we have the reality. And as a result, we who were once far away have been brought near to God. Oh, we have been brought so very near to God. Paul says that as many of us as believe in Christ as Savior have been raised up with Him, and we are now seated with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ we are where Christ is. We are before the throne of God. Remember whose you now are. In the days of ancient Israel, the priests confessed the sins of the people upon the head of the scapegoat, which was then sent out of the camp, and the scapegoat carried with him the sins of the people far away, but Jesus Christ is the better scapegoat. He was cast out of the gates of Jerusalem. He was crucified on the hill we call Calvary. And on the cross, God cast His Son out of His presence. He forsook Him to judgment for our sins. And because Christ, our scapegoat, has carried the sins of His people far away by His suffering and blood, He has brought all who trusted Him forever near to God. Forever near to God. And so whoever we are, great or small, religious or not, whoever we are, let us rest in the merits of Christ's blood shed as a payment for our sins and we shall be near God and in His courts forever. Praise be to God for His grace to sinners.